Look, I took notes on the plane and everything. <laughs> Welcome to Soundboard, the Steinway & Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. I'm your producer and host, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief at Steinway & Sons and for the online music magazine, listenmusicculture.com. My guest today is Steinway artist Regina Spector. The Soviet-born American singer-songwriter spoke to me at Steinway Hall in New York City in advance of Regina Spector on Broadway, her late June five-concert residency at the Lundfontein Theater in New York. You have a really cool, I don't want to call it a retrospective, you're doing some shows on Broadway, playing yeah. everything. Yeah, we've been calling them a residency. Okay, I like um, that. but but um, yeah, I like it too. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of outside of any sort of one record. At first, I started thinking, well, what songs kind of work theatrically, right. and then. I started realizing, wait a minute, there's so many songs that I never even put onto albums. Let me look at all the old stuff. And then that kind of got me into all kinds of strange hours of the night trying to figure out songs that I don't know how to play anymore. <laughs> now, as a Sunday composer, this was the question that popped into my head. Wait, what's a Sunday composer? A Sunday composer is like a stiff like me who works for Steinway during the <laughs> week and then scribbles tunes on Sunday. <laughs> Right. As a Sunday composer, I started thinking, even in my compositional landscape, there are some works that I've written a few years back that I don't know where I was when I wrote them. And if I look at them now, so that's my question. Mm. Is it hard to find a way in to earlier material? How do you, how do you do that? It's kind of strange. Some of it, you just play it and it feels so wow, I've been, I feel like sometimes songs are sort of like almost like vitamins and minerals where like the thing that you're like, oh, I really needed that, you know? And then other ones are just like, oh, I actually never need that ever again, <laughs> ever again. So you kind of know really quick, you know, if it, if it feels good or, or surprising or somehow a new aspect comes into it and you go, oh, wait a minute, I could... I've never done this with strings or I could really see, you know, with this particular residency, I have all kinds of Broadway-ish things. So there's there's one old song that I wrote so long ago and it's on my second self-made record, but I never thought I would want to collaborate with that and tap dancing, but I do. And it makes like perfect sense. So you found new entrees into old material in some cases. Yeah. And certain things feel really, you're like, oh, this would be amazing with that LED wall and with this projected on it and with this kind of a light and this kind of smoke and this kind of tap. <laughs> has, has this Broadway experience, let's call it, encouraged you to think in a more of a multimedia way? Definitely. The lighting designer that I've been working with, Ben Stanton, you know, we, we've worked together for a long time. And he's brought up video designs and sort of a projections before. And I've always, with a touring show, I've, I've always kind of uh, said that 
it didn't feel right because one of the things that I love about uh, live shows is that you're not watching TV and you're not watching your phone. And I feel like we live in a world where we're just so, um, you know, even even music changed once music videos came out and we sort of started expecting to just have, you know, just sit there and take in visuals with sound all the time. And so I loved that I was just this little person at a piano and if you were sitting really high up, Maybe I was just a kind of this blurry ghost and you could just close your eyes or you could think about what you wanted to think about and you weren't being fed images of what to think about, especially with, I like, I love for songs to be as free as possible. I don't like to ever talk about lyrics or meanings or assign anything to them other than what a person might feel or think in the moment of listening to it. You are my sweetest then all of a sudden, because it's this outside of my regular show experience and it's this theater residency, it's not my touring show. And at the same time, it's not a Broadway show, but I feel so good because to reimagine them with those things. So it feels all of a sudden, it feels right for a few songs to have these video images because it's the theater. Mm -hmm. And so I think because of how it's framed in my head, the song selection and the elements that we're putting together, like scrims and how well, we're going to light the mus- the string players through a scrim for this song and then the scrim's going to come up for this song and then it's going to turn all really dark and intimate for this song. You get to add this visual element to things that were heretofore ears only. Yeah, yeah. and it just, felt, it, it just felt like, oh, it makes sense in that context. Let's take it back to the music and the songwriting process. Are you a music first person? Are you a words first person? Do you compose at the Steinway? Do you, mm-hmm. when you sit down and write, how does that happen? Usually, yeah, at the Steinway. And and, and every once in a while, if it's because of New York City living at my little keyboard. Sure. <laughs> I'm a words and music at the same time kind of person. And sometimes actually for songs that, I didn't have access to a piano while I was writing the song. Like maybe, let's say I was swimming in the ocean while I was writing a song. But those usually tend to stay a cappella. Mm-hmm. Or if I was, if once, it's almost like I think of it as like jello. If it sets, there's only uh-huh. a certain amount of time where you could like add things. Add and, fruit. Yeah. yeah. And, then, and then if you, and then it just sets and it becomes what it is. And it becomes very hard for me to change, which sometimes even, um, you know, I have a lot of friends that they're so flexible. They'll change keys of their songs. And to me, the whole thing kind of 
jellos. So if it's in D flat, it's in D flat. <laughs> it's in D flat. Okay. And then it's like, that's where the muscles, muscle memory feels it and, and things just, it won't feel right in the hands until I find that D flat again, even if I want to move it. <laughs> Some pianist songwriters have trouble composing at the piano because their hands fall into old positions and it feels mm -hmm. like they they end up rewriting instead of creating. Is that something that happens to you? Oh, definitely. I'm sure. I'm sure it does. You know, this really interesting thing kind of happened to me in the very beginning because it took me so long to even figure out that I could try to write songs. So I was just playing classical music and studying classical music for a really long time, that by the time I figured out that I could try to sing and play at the same time, it was so hard for me to coordinate mm. that I really went into this sort of like very stubborn place where I felt like I had to try and free myself as much as possible and write in all different ways so that I wasn't sort of trapped in this umpa thing which uh. was like just timing it was just it was so hard for me so was that, that a classical hangover that umpa or what is no, it no the umpa was that i couldn't really do a lot of movement while mm. singing words like the coordination of when i was just playing music i felt like i was free mm. and that was one of the beautiful things that classical music gave me was the freedom of the two hands and being able to just have different lines being played and different meters with the two hands and this kind of great freedom. And then as soon as I started trying to sing over it, I was instantly chained to this very simplistic rhythm because it was very hard for me to coordinate. And until I figured out how to make this band of three now, singing and left hand and right hand work, it was really, really hard for me to kind of get out of these very, very basic rhythms. And how did you do that? Just practice or was there a special breakthrough moment? It was just practice and it was like trying every kind of thing. And then after I did that, I had this whole inferiority complex that was like, oh, no one's gonna, no one's gonna be able to listen to somebody play just piano and sing songs for 30 minutes. Mm. So I have to try and make all the songs sound really different from each other so that there's contrast. So if I arpeggiated one song, then the next song had to be super staccato and another had to be really like kind of... So I guess I didn't realize it till much later, like looking back at it, but my sort of rule was like, oh, you've already written a song like this. You can't anymore. Because of that, that really didn't happen for a long time where I just started, oh, I do this thing, I do this, you know, I, that didn't happen for a really long time. But now, of course, that I've been like writing songs for, I don't know, like I'm 39 now and I started when I was 17. So uh, it's really a while. Uh, of course, I end up being like, oh, I'm doing that thing, you know, I'm putting my hands exactly here. But at the same time, you know, my voice sits in certain places hmm. and I end up writing songs to myself where the low notes are too low and the high notes are too high. <laughs> and somehow I have to then figure out how to sing it. So, cause I really love being all over the place. Yeah. I think that's something that definitely makes you unique is, uh, this expanded range, whether it's in different voices or, or <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I basically, I, I have to, 
I have to try and make it work. Do these songs emerge as you say it sort of comes together at once, the lyrics and the notes? Is it a chord progression or are you actually writing out the figures that you end up playing? Or is it just devices to remember certain things as you play it? No, I think like kind of as I go, I'm writing it Mm -hmm. and adjusting it and changing it. It sort of kind of feels like... Are you writing out every ornament or do those come later as you flesh out the piece? Kind of usually, yeah. Kind of mm-hmm. usually every, yeah. everything. And you know what it is? It's, it kind of feels like, um, I mean, granted, much, much slower because those things are super fast. But you know those like stone polisher things that uh-huh. were, that spin? Rock and tumblers. Then, yeah, rock tumblers. It's kind of like a, if you took a rock tumbler and you slowed it down to like tortoise speed, uh-huh. that's what it feels like where you just... Slow grind. <laughs> go, yeah, exactly. You just go over and over and over again until it's... Feels right in the in the hands and and the words change and then they change back and it's interesting. I yeah and and this can go over a period of just a few hours or a period of days hmm. or a period of weeks. Uh, but then once the jello sets, then I'm stuck. <laughs> How do you know when that jello sets? You just feel it. You're like, yep, this is it. Yeah, you kind of feel it, or you try to go change that one thing, and you're like, oh no, that's right. that's not. Unfortunately, it's not a painting, so you can actually go backwards if you. If you yeah, add too yeah, much. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I have a six-year-old. You have a five-year-old. Yeah. How has that changed? <laughs> your songwriting. I know it, it upends everything, but how has that changed your? You're writing. Well, I definitely, I don't think I've ever slept enough. <laughs> and I might never sleep enough ever again. Uh, but, but, uh, so more hallucinatory uh, yes, material. Yes, definitely. Uh-huh. It's definitely like a little bit more uh, altered state. <laughs> Are you a post Joni Mitchell singer songwriter? Or are we all post Joni Mitchell? Anyone who tries to come after her? Well, this is a really interesting thing. So, the short answer is yes. I was driving across the burning desert When I spotted six jet planes Leaving six white vapor trails Across the bleak terrain It was the hexagram of the heavens It was the strings of my guitar It was just a false alarm But but for me, because I sort of come from this uh, Joni Mitch, you know, she's very Canada, North America. And so in, in, in Soviet Russia, nobody knew who Joni was. And uh, certain things made it over there, like uh, especially in the underground scene. Like I, I, um, I grew up listening to the Beatles and the Moody Blues even before I knew English. But really, like I feel like the earliest sort of like uh, these are the continents upon which my like music consciousness stands or, or classical music, the Soviet uh, guitar playing singer songwriter bards like Vysotsky, Akujava, people who are, you know, Nikitin, there's this whole incredible amount of these just such poetic 
singer songwriters. Troubadours. Yeah, troubadours, exactly. And and really like it's real poetry. And it really, I think, is the part where, you know, you realize that you could early on that that songs could be about anything. Because these people, especially Vysotsky, Vladimir Vysotsky, he wrote really about anything. He was an actor. Uh, he died very young, but he wrote thousands of songs. Like he was a national hero, and he wrote joke songs and songs that were so such incredible, vivid descriptions of things that happened during World War II that people wrote him letters. Veterans wrote him letters saying, "I was there. I was in your platoon." When that happened, and he he, he was thought, right because oh, wow. it was so vivid, yeah. and and at the same time he could be. Then the next song would be with him as a from the perspective of a petty criminal. These incredible works of art that were so complete, for, and because he was an actor, he could truly embody it. Я коней своих накайкаю, стигаю, погоняю, что-то воздуху мне мало, ветер пью, туман глотаю, чую с гибелиным восторгом, пропадаю. Пропадаю чуть помедленнее кони, чуть помедленнее. Вы тугую не слушайте плеть. So that gave you freedom to go esoteric when you wanted to and universal when you wanted to. Well, yeah. But hmm. there's a but there because because none of them were women, and because none of the composers that I was classical composers that I was playing were women either. This very obvious thing, and now in in hindsight, it's so ridiculous. But this is really the truth. You know, even the Beatles and Moody Blues and all the and Bob Dylan and all these people, they were all men. And then the people that I sort of started, you know, discovering a lot of them, you know, even. Like even who were more modern, maybe like Jeff Buckley or Rufus Wainwright, were also men. It really took me a very long time to figure out that women could write songs and were kind of allowed to write songs, and it just did not enter my mind to try. And it was coming in contact with basically other girls my age who were like maybe when I was like fifteen and sixteen. Who were listening to Ani DeFranco and Tori Amos was really like those two people, mm-hmm. Ani DeFranco and Tori Amos, and I was like, oh, they're they're just they're writing songs, you know. And then this uh, friend of mine that I met on a on a trip on a create kind of creative teenagers trip to Israel that I took, she sent me a cassette tape of Joni Mitchell. And that really, I think that that was like, so, so the answer is yes, definitely. Yeah. But that really kind of blew my mind in that like, oh, like how Joni, she wrote. Joni, Ani, and, and Tori. Yeah. And Tori off on her tangents. Mm-hmm. And, and then it was like, oh, like those kind of, that kind of like 
uh, what's that called? Like triumvirate? No, what, I don't know. Yeah, 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 big three. But yeah, the big three. <laughs> yeah, the, it really made me feel like, oh, you know, I I should try and write songs because I was also kind of singing a cappella like to myself just in the shower and in life I was always humming but it was never it never entered my mind because piano and classical piano was so sacred to me and it was also so beautiful you don't really want to go from playing beautiful music to your like weird umpa umpa like you know basic stuff so it just kind of and it was a pretty painful transition because you know you kind of go from playing the best music to the worst music <laughs> until and, you can make it better yeah, yeah and yeah. then and then you really you really try to make it better okay <laughs> <laughs> Do your own background vocals as well? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So is that part of the puzzle for you, or is that something once the jello is gelling, like, okay, maybe a third under here? This no? Never. You okay. know, it's funny. Like the songs are the songs, and mm-hmm. the songs sort of like the way that I write them, they could be played for people. They're me- meant to be like, I've written this thing and now now I could play it to you in a room and it exists. Mm-hmm. And it it doesn't necessarily need the studio to like help you feel it or a band or anything else you know some people's music like it's like kind of like it lives in an atmosphere it's like a vibe or it has to be sort of built and you know I have plenty of people whose music I love so much and one of the things that they experience is that somebody asks them to play a song they need it's really hard for them to figure out how to do it because they need like this whole thing to play a song and I feel like for the most part, the way that I write the songs, it's like I could play you the song. I might hear a lot of things in my head that you can't hear that supplement, but I don't need them. So you feel your songs can be arranged in many different ways. Exactly. Well, this is this is part of the mystery of making the record. And so all those things like harmonies and everything that comes in with the record making. When I make the record, then this other weird thing happens where the jello then gets put into another layer of jello and then that jello has to harden because i also am always like searching for these things that are only in my head but they're also really really abstract because you know like okay you compose music so you could hear a certain kind of thing in your head and then you go to a real instrument that's in real space that's made of real things and you touch it your finger to a note and that's like somebody waking you from a dream Right? It takes you out of this mysterious sounds that are in your imagination that are outside of real. It's like you have to go from the blueprint to actually building something in right. life. Yeah. yeah. And it, then that brings, you know, a Steinway brings with it its own thing. And even, you know, the interesting thing is if you compose on different pianos, they're going to make you play different things. Because they have their own stuff that they're... It's like they have their own agenda and they're trying to get it out through you. Like you think you're playing the piano. The piano is like, I'm going to play you a little bit. And, and you know, same thing with guitar, same thing with everything. And then it depends what room you're doing it in because the room has its agenda. And then, you know, the time of day has its agenda. What you're going to want to... What midnight's going to want you to play is different than when 9 a.m. is going to want you to play. And so you're kind of interacting with all these things 
And you're in some ways still trying to like, you know, say something that's, that's genuine and what you actually want to do and find, find the sound for it. But, but in the studio, it's really mysterious to me because a lot of the time I end up taking, you know, I end up taking things off of pianos because sometimes I'm the happiest performing it live on the piano, but the way that I'm trying to do the like the source material, the the biblical like OG, this is the source, you know, and the piano might be too specific a sound. And so sometimes then I have to take it off of the piano and put it onto something else. I have to find that something else. So all of a sudden I find myself cooking a sound. So I'm maybe processing the piano or blending it with, you know, with a cello or, or with a synth just so and tucking the synth really subliminally under to create like a certain kind of depth or a shadowing. You know, it's kind of like, I guess it's like painting where you're like, you know what, this letter really needs a drop shadow on it to pop. Or you put something there and you put it on a synth and you do all that stuff and then you're like, you know what, screw it. It just needs a piano. <laughs> Is the record the culmination of the song, or is it just a snapshot of the song at that point in time? Yeah, the second. Okay. Which is like, I kind of wish it was the culmination of the song. <laughs> so you could leave it alone. <laughs> so I could just rest easy. <laughs> but the truth is, is that like the, the real truth that I have to live with is that there is no real record of any of the songs. And so I just sort of do the best I can at the time. And a lot of the time I'll feel really strongly about things being just so, and it'll be a very particular snapshot, and I'll, uh, some of them I'm more happy with, some of them are, I'm less happy with, but none of them, when I look back, are exactly the thing, no matter how hard I work. <laughs> I never loved nobody fully Always one foot on the ground Steinway and Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. We heard clips from Amelia by Joni Mitchell from her album Hegira on Elektra Records. Vladimir Vysotsky performing fastidious steeds on his greatest hits double album on Melodia. And we heard Regina Spector performing Samson, Better, and Fidelity, all from her gold record Begin to Hope on Sire Records. Our intro and outro music is Philip Glass's Mad Rush, performed on a Steinway Model M by me, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief at listenmusicculture.com. Questions for the podcast can be sent to info at steinway.com with the subject heading Soundboard. Thank you for listening. <laughs>